invite you to open your Bibles to Daniel in the Old Testament, page 819. Follow along as I read from the first chapter. We are beginning our series on the first six chapters of Daniel. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power, as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. These he brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. Then the king commanded his palace master, Aspenaz, to bring some of the Israelites of the royal family and of the nobility young men without physical defect and handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight, and competent to serve in the king's palace, they were to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine. They were to be educated for three years so that at the end of that time they could be stationed in the king's court. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the tribe of Judah. The palace master gave them other names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine. So he asked the palace master to allow him not to defile himself. Now God allowed Daniel to receive favor and compassion from the palace master. The palace master said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king. He has appointed your food and your drink. If, you, if he should see you in poorer condition than the other young men of your own age, you would endanger my head with the king. And Daniel asked the guard whom the palace master had appointed over him and his three friends, Please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. You can then compare our appearance with the appearance of the young men who eat the royal rations and deal with your servants according to what you observe. So he agreed to this proposal and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was observed that they appeared better and fatter than all the young men who had been eating the royal rations. So the guard continued to withdraw their royal rations and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and skill in every aspect of literature and wisdom. Daniel also had insight into all visions and dreams. At the end of the time that the king had set for them to be brought in, the palace master brought them into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. 
And among them all, no one was found to compare with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they were stationed in the king's court in every matter of wisdom and understanding concerning which the king inquired of them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel continued there until the first year of King Cyrus the Great. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, don't worry, this is not a sermon about your becoming a vegetarian <laughs> and drinking only water and eating vegetables. That sounds pretty boring to me. Especially a Gentile, as I am, I love to eat from all tables and all foods. Ethnic foods, great. I love pork and lamb and beef and fish and chicken and all those things. And especially I like Tex-Mex from my home state. Can't find it around here, so once a year maybe have the privilege of enjoying that. But the food we eat is a very important question for many religious people. It is tied in with their faith tradition. They are concerned about maintaining a ritual purity cleanness and not being defiled by any food. That whole notion has been foreign to me as it is to most Gentiles. But for those in the Jewish community and the Muslim community, this is a very important issue. Presbyterians, we, we have become more and more interested in food. Our own um, a health insurance program of the Presbyterian Church for us pastors is concerned about what we eat. And so every year, in order to get a lower deductible in our insurance, we have to have the yearly physical, we have to answer all kinds of behavioral questions, and then there's a series of other things that we can do to build up 1,000 points in order to qualify for the lower deductible. And one of the things that I've chosen to do is to make an appointment with a, with a, a, a registered dietitian. The first time I've ever done that. To talk to me about the food that I eat. Of course, the motivation is to get the lower deductible. But I think I may learn something and benefit from this whole process. In the last decade, I, I was a member of a, of a conversation team with Presbyterian pastors and theologians and seminary professors, along with an equal number of the leadership of the American Jewish community. And we had a task given to us by the General Assembly of our church, and that was to rewrite a paper on the relationship between Christians and Jews. 
And so we came together and we talked about a lot of different important questions. What is truth? Should we do evangelism amongst Jewish people and seek to win them to Jesus as their Messiah? What do we think about the state of Israel and the promise of land to the Jewish people? How do we make peace amongst Jews and Palestinians? And it went on and on. But central and undergirding and supportive of this whole conversation at Princeton Seminary and at Columbia Seminary in the South and at retreat centers once or twice a year was the whole question of food. And our colleagues' interest in being kosher, that is, observing the eating rules of the Jewish religious community. And so they insisted on catering all the food. And they brought in the best Jewish caterers, and I learned how delicious kosher food can be. We all rejoiced in the end product, but when it was presented to the committee at the General Assembly to be voted on as to whether or not it would be passed on to the General Assembly, the committee voted it down, said it was occupation theology. And it crushed the spirits of some of our Jewish brothers and sisters and disappointed them, made them angry along with some of us, but nevertheless, those are a part of the political, spiritual, religious dynamics of being a part of a larger church. And I'm grateful for that. I wrote a paper last year for the assembly on the Belhar Confession, only to have it rejected by the committee as well. I know that can be disappointing. The second experience I had was I was invited after the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. to be a part of an interfaith dialogue in Basel, Switzerland. And we were coming together to discuss peacemaking in our world and the role that religious communities have in that regard. As we think about 9-11, that's a very important question and subject. And so we came together, and they wanted us to wear our ecclesiastical clothing. They wanted me to wear a collar, white collar with a black shirt and a dark suit. I looked like a Catholic priest or a Lutheran pastor. And we had Protestants, we had Orthodox Christians, we had Catholic priests, we had university professors, we had American Jews and Israeli Jews sitting with us in a room at the Three Kings Hotel in Basel overlooking the Rhine River. It was like a meeting of the United Nations, but most importantly, what we wanted to accomplish, an equal number of Iranian Shiite imams joined us from Iran. And that made the gathering very unique and distinctive. To my right and my left to the table were these gentlemen in their long robes and their beards and their turbans on their head. And I couldn't understand one word of Persian. Are they of English? We had translators. And I watched how the hotel handled this whole question of food. We could have planted another seed of division there if we had not provided kosher food. 
And so they provided kosher. And we ate together and we talked together and we made friends together. And I realized, just like with Daniel and his three companions, still 2,500 years later, the question of food and identity belong together. So the issue this morning is not just food. Rather, at the deepest levels, it has to do with how we maintain our spiritual identity in a world that is constantly pressing in upon us, seeking to squeeze us into its own mold. This was what was happening to Daniel and his friends in Babylon. Jerusalem had been destroyed. The Babylonian armies had won the battles. The king was killed. The temple was burned and razed. The city of Jerusalem was in ruins. And there must have been something of that feel that we all felt on 9-11. A holocaust. A time of suffering for the Jewish people. And Daniel and the three were taken with them back to Babylon. And there they were chosen by the king to be incorporated into his court, to become Babylonian wise men. But what that meant for them was that the slate needed to be wiped clean of all they had inherited from Jerusalem. They were to be reoriented, re-educated. They had to learn the language of Babylon. They went to Babylon U. They studied the literature of Babylon and its religions, its political and economic system. They were given new Babylonian names that witnessed to the Babylonian gods that reminded them daily when people addressed them with their Babylonian names that the gods of Babylon had defeated Yahweh, the Lord of the Jewish people. And there was no future in the past, to be sure, only in a future as Babylonians. But what emerges in this chapter 1 is also that daily they were to partake their food of the royal rations. That is, they were to eat from the king's table and every time they did, they ate Gentile food, non-kosher food, but at a deeper level. They ate food that constantly reminded them that they were now servants of Babylon, that their future identity was in Babylon and not in Jerusalem. So this is the background. It's a question about identity and trust, and the question that comes to me is, have we ever struggled with identity questions and issues? We, we think that kids grow up, and this is one of the number one things they have to deal with. They ask questions, as we do. Some of us struggle with these questions all of our lives. Who am I? Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? What is the meaning and purpose of life? And we join up with many groups and go to different colleges and universities and, and graduate schools. We join differing churches, 
all in a quest for our identity. Who are we and how are we going to live these limited number of years that we are given by virtue of being born into this world? We struggle with that. Not only as individuals, but as churches. A woman was telling me about their, this morning about their church in Denver. She said, I love to come here. We get our yearly taste of liturgy here at Laguna Press and the preaching of the word. We're a very different kind of a church in Denver, a big church, a mega church, and the worship is very different. And we agree together there are different identities in the body of Christ. Uh, in over 50 years of my ministry, I have heard it said over and over again that the number one problem that we Presbyterians have is that we do not know who we are. And that has always puzzled me. But that may indeed be true. I've heard it said over and over again that the Presbyterian church used to be on Sunday morning in prayer the gathering of the Republican Party. That's our identity. <laughs> and now some say that the remnant of the Presbyterian Church is the Democratic Party in prayer on Sunday morning. Who are we? Is it our economics? Is it our politics? Is it the cultural religion that defines us, that gives to us our identity? that challenges us, that wants to squeeze us into its own mold seductively and often without our even realizing it. We are shaped and formed into an identity. But what is it that makes me a Christian and a Presbyterian Christian? And so this morning, I wanted to address that larger issue and put this question in the context of the faith that we have received that is so foundational for our thinking about our identity. We've been given a baptismal fount that sits at the front of the church, and here we splash water on infants and adults. And we ask those who are being baptized into Christ, do you confess that Jesus Christ is your Savior and Lord? And do you intend to be his disciple, to obey his word and to show his love? Will you be a faithful member of the church? And we ask the congregation, the covenant community, will you come along beside these disciples and nurture their life and help them grow up into spiritual maturity? That spiritual maturity is rooted in the great truth of the biblical revela revelation that we have received, that we are all created in the image of God. God said, let there be, and everything that came into being, including the humans, were declared to be very good, a gift of God. And God entrusted to us the mission of stewardship of caring for this little planet Earth, of making it an environment in which people and nations can live at peace. It's an awe-inspiring cosmos that we're a part of, and yet we're such a little part. Did you see the NASA picture this week? They captured a picture of a star somewhere billions of light years away exploding. 
And it was an awesome picture. And here we are in this little galaxy, out here in this cosmos, floating around. And we have the audacity to claim that all of this was created by the sovereign God, the ruler of heaven and earth, who in order to save life on this defiled earth, broke into human history, in the history of Israel, entered in the covenant relationship, gave his law, called his people to be a unique and distinctive people for the purpose of being a light to the nations. And along with that came all the dietary rules. But in the fullness of time, this creator God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law in order to redeem those who are under the law in order that we might receive adoption as the children of God. That's who I want to affirm who we are this morning. And in order to make that possible, God came to us in human form. And in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he called out a new people, one new humanity, reconciled through the blood of the cross, a Savior who had proclaimed, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be yours as well. A Savior who taught, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And it seemed to me that Jesus summarized it all up. Your heavenly Father knows you have need of all these things. You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, your food, your drink, your clothing, your housing, will come to you. It was this same Jesus who suffered and died on the cross to make atonement for our sins, who reconciled us to the Father and us to one another, brought us together into a fellowship so that there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, black or white, rich or poor, you name it, east or west. God's intention has been to unite all things in Christ. And he calls us whom he has redeemed to live into that and to become who he has declared us to be as the children of God, a fellowship that reaches out around the earth. And so the apostle said, I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The waters of this baptismal fount remind us that we no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to him. We are each temples of the Holy Spirit. And he says to us, you shall be holy for I am holy. You belong to me. Remember, it's not what goes into you in terms of food and drink that defile you, but it is what comes out of you, out of your hearts. I want to give you a new heart and fill you up with myself and empower you to be the person I created you to be. This is who we are. Children of God. Justified not by our own good works, but recipients of the grace of God. This conversation about our identity is going on at so many levels across the country now that there is a boiling of spiritual renewal. And I think it seeks to address the great identity question that many feel, people who know they're lost and are searching for a place to call home. And that place is in fellowship with Christ and with his people. He gives us this table. And on this table, the table of the Lord, the king's table, if you will, there is indeed royal rations. It is in the bread, which is the body of Christ. It is in the cup, which is the cup of salvation, the blood of Christ. And as we come to this table in faith, we receive him. And he comes to live within us so that we, we can know the great truth that Christ in us is the hope of glory on the final day. We will each be evaluated before God, not on the basis of the food we put in our mouth, but whether or not Christ has been welcomed into our hearts and we have freely come to his table. The table where the royal rations are is our destiny. For on the final day, there will be, the gospel says, a great messianic banquet. And the king will invite God's elect people to come and to eat and drink with the Messiah. The tragedy in the story that Jesus told in Luke 14 was that so many were so preoccupied, so busy doing business, marrying and giving in marriage, and simply swimming in the ways of the world, that they refused to come to the table and receive the royal rations. So the king said, he sent out his servants saying, go out and round up everyone, and especially those who thought they would never receive the invitation. The poor, the blind, the sick, 
the broken, the outcast, the sinners. Invite them. They'll come. Let my house be full and let all of humanity come to the table of the Lord. For here our true identity in Christ is nurtured. Two weeks from now we'll all come on World Communion Sunday. After hearing the word of God proclaimed, we will come to his table. Male and female, black and white, every color skin, all languages welcomed, all reconciled in Christ, temples of the Holy Spirit. This we confess today as we join together in our affirmation of the Apostles' Creed what it is we believe. Stand with me and let's affirm our faith together.